This episode is sponsored by Lob. Lob provides an API that enables developers to send postcards, letters, check, and more as effortlessly as sending emails. Lob is trusted by over 6,000 customers, including Amazon, Square, and Council. They're kind of like SendGrid or Twilio, except for snail mail. They're providing the building blocks for people to incorporate print and mail into their application with their API, and their technology takes all the pain out of mail and can easily be integrated with any application. They have libraries available, and you can send one or one million at a time, and their web service is always available, and requests go through instantly so that your mail is more timely and relevant. You can use webhooks to follow your mail through the mail stream with live tracking events and PDF proofs. Lots of customers use Lob for marketing purposes, but they also have a lot of customers using them for transactional purposes, such as sending out HIPAA compliant mail for insurance and healthcare companies, address verification postcards like couchsurfing or billing notices. Go check them out right now at lob.com. Welcome to Ruby Rogues. I'm Jason Sweat, filling in for Charles Max Wood. Today on our panel, we have Dave Camaro. How's it going? Happy to be here. And our guest today is Eric Dietrich. Now, Eric is founder of DeadTech LLC, programmer, architect, IT management consultant, blogger, and technologist, according to his website. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the future of work in web development. Uh, is that right, Eric? Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds right. Okay, wonderful. So uh, I'm not sure where to start, but you wrote a a book, Eric, uh, about the future of labor. And I guess can you kind of share as a starting point your your ideas around uh, where things are headed and and stuff like that. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, the book, I'm actually kind of in the process of writing it towards the very end. I am doing it via LeanPub, which for those who aren't familiar with that, LeanPub is a publishing model where you write the book and um, you actually publish as you go. So you finish a chapter, publish, and anybody who has um, pre-ordered the book, so to speak, they'll get updates and they can read and give you feedback as you go. So I'm about 90% finished with the book. The book is called Developer Hegemony, and um, it is about the future of labor. Uh, that is the subtitle of it. And specifically, as the title developer would indicate, it's about software developers and where I see software development going in the future. And I guess at the very broadest view of that, I think that you're going to see a flow of software developers kind of leaving big enterprise organizations and doing more freelance work and forming together in more pure application development firms that these large enterprises will then contract with. And I think um, it kind of as an anchoring point for that, I would say that it may start to look like more like law firms or um, uh, doctor practices and that particular branch of knowledge work rather than being quite so closely tied with um, large organizations, especially ones that don't uh, produce software. So that so at the Eric, broadest I, level is where I see it going. I, I just have to ask, what got you interested in this topic and wanting to write about it? I would say a, a few different things kind of all happening simultaneously. Um, I spent a good bit of my career as a programmer, um, kind of working my way up through the uh, standard software development track, if you will, um, senior developer, and then team lead, architect, and eventually management. And the last corporate position I had was as a CIO. And then I left that and I went to doing independent consulting. And these days I do a lot of IT management and strategy consulting, um, working with managers and executives to help 
improve their uh, organizations. And so the sum of all of that experience gave me a lot of points of view, I guess, um, seeing the software development uh, process in the corporation from all angles. And in parallel with that, I started a blog a number of years ago, gained some traction, you know, doing how-to posts and sort of whatever occurred to me. And it, it seemed like the most popular posts, the ones that resonated with readers and where I get reader questions and people writing in, are all about um, some combination of office politics, um, interviewing, and you know, not necessarily technical how-to posts, but the the workings of the actual organization itself. So, being as involved as I've been in all those things from so many angles over the years um, gave me the idea to write a book, um, along with uh, some of my readers expressing interest in in maybe longer form uh, uh, thoughts on the matter. Okay, and you mentioned you 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 see more like freelancing and stuff like that, and developers going more the route of doctors and lawyers and stuff. Can you tell me about more about that? What do you mean by that? Well, what I see at organizations, especially when I go into large enterprise organizations that um, that make things that aren't software, you know, say banks, uh, financial companies, what have you. They struggle in a lot of cases to find and hire software developers, especially uh, talented ones, because um, their large management structures tend to create a lot of downward pressure on software developer wages, meaning that, um, you know, imagine a smaller organization, um, 100 people or something that wants to hire some software developers. If that organization has trouble hiring software developers, they can simply offer more money. Uh, assuming they have the budget for it, and, and that's easy, problem solved. Um, the larger organizations have trouble doing that because they have all these layers of management on top of them that also have their own salary requirements and bands. So if you imagine a large kind of pyramid-shaped structure with developers at the bottom, raising wages for the people at the bottom raises all the wages of everybody on top of them. Mm. And so this creates this crunch for these organizations where, you know, I've, I've talked to executives and managers who are saying, we want to pay more. We literally can't do that. How do we hire people? You know, they can offer perks, uh, you know, wear jeans to work or work from home or whatever. But even those kind of struggle uh, to compete with more uh, nimble, modern firms. So what they do instead is they start to bring in contractors or just entirely outsource the labor to application development firms. Because unlike their employees, there's no pay bans for that. You can pay a software developer contractor $100 an hour and it doesn't upset anything in the organization. So that's one of the biggest factors that I see playing into this and kind of pushing software development out of the enterprise and um, into smaller firms that they contract with. Interesting. Okay. And that all, that all makes sense. And I've seen some of that too. Like I worked at at and for a while and it was just a room full of contractors. Nobody was an ATT employee. Um, but there was, there was a room full of dozens of people all going through different staffing agencies and they were all, uh, contractors. So, yeah. so that that's consistent with what I've seen. Um, what so about are, the, yeah, go ahead, Dave. So, Eric, do you think that this is some kind of bubble where we'll see this kind of paradigm shift from corporations moving to outsourcing? But then, mm -hmm. you know, outsourcing has its own kind of drawbacks where, you know, you have a bunch of people who you can't really vouch for their quality of work, then bringing that application back in house. 
uh, to continue the development because, you know, I've seen a lot of outsourced programs. And if you um, search online, you can probably find some really funny uh, outsourced source code <laughs> where it is just a conglomeration of a mess. So do you see this kind of being a bubble just in this generation where people are outsourcing more and more, you know, these larger corporations, but then they almost have a uh, buyer's remorse and then kind of turn things and restructure things to bring them back in house. Um, I'm laughing because, uh, you know, the websites having that, and I can think of, they're actually like firms I've seen that specialize in the, it's part of their marketing. You know, did you outsource something? We'll help you clean up the mess. Um, so it's a, a good question. And I, I, I could see it potentially going that way. Um, but what I think will probably happen that sort of splits the difference, if you will, is that we've historically outsourced poorly. The way that outsourcing has gone when when you're an enterprise or I guess a company of any size and you farm out labor, what you do is you bring in a bunch of project managers and business analysts and, and people with titles like that. And they spend a lot of time coming up with requirements and maybe they bring in an architect or a designer and they come up with wireframes. And then once they have all that stuff, that's when they go and they ship the labor somewhere else. And they say, okay, we've figured out all the important things. Now you guys just go and execute on this plan. And that creates a lot of, I guess I'll call it surface area of interaction. Um, what I see happening in the future and what I see with successful um, app dev consultancies is that they're trying to get away from being handed a spec and going to execute on it. And instead, they're trying to come in at the level, uh, you know, a conceptually higher level. So it's not, I have this website that I want you to build and here are the wireframes and here are all the interaction models and, and the requirements, et cetera. It's much earlier. We think we need a website. And so we're going to come to you as a firm and ask you to help us with that. And I think when you kind of reduce the surface area of interaction, you're going to, to some extent, reduce those outsourcing horror stories where they go off with the spec for six months and come back with something horrible. Um, I think you'll see less of that. So tell me about the doctor-lawyer thing that you mentioned. I'm curious what you mean by that. Well, if I look at um, when I try to articulate this to people and, you know, at times it might be a bit of an oversimplification. I don't know if I could say that software development will model itself exactly after, say, law firms, but there there are some properties of that that are interesting. And if you look at um, uh, being a lawyer or being a doctor, those are our um, vocations, knowledge work professions that predated um, the Industrial Revolution and uh, modern work. So they've been around for a really long time. And if you contrast that with IT, IT and software development specifically was um, forged in the fires of the modern corporation. And so it's historically kind of viewed as an operational concern of a corporation. Um, and I think it, it will be a lurching step in that direction. But if I look out at the future, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me for some of the reasons that we've discussed to have a fairly um, high paying and extremely in demand profession like software development to have layers and layers of software managers on top of it in the same way that you know lawyers have really high hourly bill rates. And when you look at law firms, they don't have layers and layers of lawyer managers telling them what to do. Those firms instead they the the lawyers own the firms and they delegate out other work, you know, any kind of marketing, uh, operational concerns, accounting, et cetera. 
So the lawyers run the show and they delegate the other concerns. And that's where I kind of see us going. And I'm seeing successful uh, app dev firms that start this way. They're started by developers who learn enough about business um, to either do those things themselves or to farm them out because um, they can manage it. And so that's kind of the model that I mean. So I don't know that it's exactly like those professions, but where you have <clears throat> software developers themselves as principals, um, you know, calling the shots and, and farming mm-hmm. out everything that needs to happen or hiring for it or what have you. So I, I think, I think I we'll see more mean. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I found that an organization tends to be a reflection of who the owner is. Like if the owner is a developer, I've seen this in consultancies and startups. Like if the owner's a developer, then they'll hire like eight developers and a sales guy and a designer. <laughs> and if if the owner is, um, wait, did I say, what I meant to say is if it's a developer, they'll hire a bunch of developers. If right. it's a sales guy, they'll hire a bunch of sales guys. And the agencies that I've seen that like really are successful is where the owner of it is a developer and they hired a bunch of developers because I've worked at other ones where the owner is uh, like a salesperson and those ones tend not to have a very strong development culture. And mm-hmm. so they're, uh, th- the way they do their work sucks. And so <laughs> when any good developers get hired, they are horrified by what's going on and they leave. And so those companies have a lot of churn in their development team. And so they're not as successful. Yeah, absolutely. Or, um, you know, another common um, paradigm like that that I'll see is if if the person maybe was a developer at some point um, or maybe not, but their background is mainly project management, then they'll tend to really emphasize process over the craft and, and the software development itself. So, Eric, yep. this whole concept of, you know, moving more towards the outsourcing, that's also going to have more of a trickle-down effect for other areas in a business. You know, for like a DevOps perspective, you know, would uh, do you think that we are also going to have a shift in the uh, DevOps world where that's getting outsourced more? Or do you think that's going to stay more in-house and just the software's coming in from the outside? That's interesting. I hadn't really given that a lot of thought, but off the top, what I imagine will happen is that you'll probably see two main patterns, which is one where the um, the development and operations DevOps, uh, the whole nine yards is what gets contracted. And so you're contracting a firm, not just to build the software, but to um, keep it going. And then I could see another competing model where uh, and this is one you've seen more historically where the software gets written somewhere else and then it's up to the staff application developers or, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, maintenance programmers to um, uh, to keep the lights on, so to speak. So I, I think what I imagine happening is that you will see both of those things and then one of them will kind of win um, and that'll attract a lot of followers. Man, I really hope this doesn't turn into a VHS Betamax fight. Cause that's, that's going to be ugly. <laughs> you know, it's such a fluid thing, like, uh, in going into a lot of organizations, uh, which I get the opportunity to do as a consultant. Um, I, I get the sense a lot of people mean a lot of different things by DevOps too. Um, so I think there will probably be a lot of fluidity into the split, I guess, between the build and the maintenance. So I'd like to understand something else, Eric, if, 
if a lot of development will be going to these uh, kind of developer-led development agencies, do you see that as growing and like companies having fewer and fewer in-house programmers? Or how do you see that going? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that um, it's where you're going to see the biggest amount of, I guess, carving out is going to be in large organizations that don't specialize in software. So Google is a large organization. Um, you know, any large automaker is a large organization, but perhaps the automaker, unlike Google, doesn't specialize in software. I think it's those type of companies that are going to shift the most toward dealing with these um, uh, application development consultancies. And um, yeah, I think you will see a lot fewer people at those organizations because if you go around and look, and and um, I have a lot of I guess, insight into this from working at these types of companies, usually what they're doing, especially if they're bringing in um, management consultants, uh, they're trying to do some sort of agile transformation or some variant of that concept where they're saying, we're developing software like it's 1975. We want to modernize <clears throat> and, you know, more power to them. That's great to do. But as they do that, um, the thing that they bang up against is their own um, lack of appetite for risk usually. So it'll be things like, you know, and I can recall going into organizations where the developers aren't allowed to download and use open source libraries, or if they want to, you know, change their IDE settings, they have to submit something to a committee and ask for permission. They don't have administrative access to their computers. So there's this death by a thousand cuts paradigm that prevents them from being effective. And I think a lot of that gets a, what you hit as you try to work backwards as to what's causing that is you eventually get back to the legal department or to some kind of security department where they're saying, we can't let people do these things because we're going to get sued or it's going to reflect poorly on us in some way. And when you move those developers out of there and into an outsourced firm, they don't face those restrictions. So uh, I think, yeah, you'll you'll see companies employing fewer and fewer developers and, and probably the ones <clears throat> they do will, <clears throat> excuse me, again, to, uh, I guess, kind of cite the law firm model. You know, large organizations have staff attorneys, but what those people mainly do is handle general questions and then take charge of um, hiring specialists. And I could see a similar thing happening. Yeah, so uh, I definitely don't want to make this into more of a uh, political statement, so please don't read into it too much. But uh, do you think that the outsourcing is going to be uh, more locality-based or shipped overseas? Just because, you know, with a lot of the recent uh, politics going on, you know, you hear uh, a certain someone saying, you know, if you outsource your, develop, uh, if you outsource your manufacturing to this country, I'm going to raise taxes on you. So you're going to have to pay more. It would have just been worth more to build it here. So do you think we're going to see um, some kind of uh, political trickle down to where the outsourcing is actually taking place and stuff like that? I think that's a great question. Um, I actually wrote about this topic on my blog. And just like you did, I really tried to keep any uh, political value judgments out of it. But um with what's going on in the U.S., uh, I think the thing that 
and, and when I talk to people that are tech executives, that they should really be looking for <clears throat> is uh, Donald Trump and getting elected. One of the uh, campaign promises he ran on, and you know, we'll see what comes of this, but was to severely restrict H-1B visas. H-1B visas bring an awful lot of people over to the U.S. at a pretty reasonable rate. And the major companies, like enterprise companies, dig deep into that pool of uh, labor. And I think if some of this um, uh, political climate, if some of these things come to pass, that you will see um, reductions in the number of those people, they're going to stay home in the countries that they were coming from. And it's not like they're going to stop doing business. What they're going to do is set up, um, you're going to have talented folks, instead of coming to the U.S. to do this work, they're going to set up bases of operations in other countries. So what I expect to see is that, um, depending on, I guess, what shakes out with the administration, but that you might see software development increasingly base in other countries. Maybe the U.S. isn't quite as much of a hub, especially if, um, you know, the appetite uh, for bringing back manufacturing jobs, you know, the real enemy of that, it's not so much people, but automation. And so if there is a climate that's um, maybe looking for more manual labor type jobs, it might be somewhat against automation. And again, that might have the effect of um, uh, pushing some of this labor overseas. And, you know, we're at an all-time high in terms of collaborative technologies right now. Uh, so you can do that more and more effectively. Uh, obviously, you're still going to have time zone struggles and, and and all the things that have historically been there. But I do see this becoming more global. Um, I've also seen in the industry the rise of what's called nearshoring, where the U.S. will contract to firms in, say, Brazil, where the time zones are similar, so it's relatively less expensive labor, but um, you don't have that offset the way you would uh, working with people in Southeast Asia or India from the U.S. So, yeah, I think there will be a move towards globalization in the coming years um, that will be part and parcel with this shift out of um, staff software developers at these firms. There's something uh, you touched on, Eric, when we chatted before we started the episode, kind of around the the industrial workflow process or whatever you want to call it versus knowledge work and mm -hmm. how those two things are pretty different but we still we're kind of shoehorning knowledge work into an industrial pattern yep <laughs> this is um this is something i could easily get onto a soapbox on in in writing the book that i've written um you know for the sake of uh, background completeness or what have you, I started doing a lot of research into, uh, okay, we, I, I see these problems that I'm going to write about. I'm going to write about um, how I think they could get better, but what is it that's caused the corporation to be this way? How did it get to where it is? And in doing that research, I was sort of blown away by how much we just kind of came to a point in the early 1900s and then more or less stayed at that point. Like for instance, um, it's fairly common practice in the industry to work eight hours a day, five days a week for a 40 hour work week. The answer to why we do that is both simple and surprising. And it's because before that, during the industrial revolution, um, when there was a push to get factories going 24 hours a day, uh, workers were forced to work 10 to 16 hours a day. Um, there was pushback obviously from the workers as you started to have labor unionizing and, um, 
uh, and workers' rights come into effect, where they wanted to work fewer hours. Uh, and there was, uh, I forget the name of the guy, but one of the big advocates for that said, we should work an eight-hour day because it's eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, and eight hours of leisure. It's a you know perfect split. Henry Ford, um, you know, I guess thought maybe this was good advice. So he implemented this at Ford. And as part of implementing an eight-hour day, and he actually paid people more so that they would have enough money to buy Ford products, um, they saw a big rise in profits and efficiency. And so great, an experiment was run, the eight-hour day, that looks good. But that was it. Uh, that happened in the 19-teens, and we haven't really revisited that since. Um, and you'll see similar kinds of things if you look at, um, you know, why does the day start at nine or eight or whatever? Um, how do we do job interviews? A lot of that just kind of formed in the early 1900s and we haven't seriously revisited it since. So, and that applies to management principles as well. Um, the way that we typically manage in corporations, the pyramid shaped corporation, um, the tendency toward micromanagement, uh, things of that nature, is all traced in large part to something called scientific management um, that someone named Frederick Taylor came up with in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And all of that, if you, if you think about what was going on then, um, you were manufacturing the first automobiles, you were coming out of the Industrial Revolution and into modern times. So all of that was factory labor. And yet, that's kind of still, now that we're making software and doing a, a radically different thing, we're still managing people as if they were laborers. And so I think that's where we get a lot of the um, the problems that we currently have in the corporation. So what I'm talking about in the book and what I advocate for in general is maybe a more um, radical revisitation of the way we do work. So what do you think would be better? Well, I... Rather than talk about prescriptive trends, I guess if I, if I think about uh, I, I think about it in terms maybe more of heuristics, like knowledge work isn't the same as labor. Um, whereas labor, if you're manufacturing widgets and you're on the assembly line, um, you want to get into a rhythm and you want to batch up your work and um, kind of go efficiently. But knowledge work doesn't really work that way. You're gonna kind of stare at your screen for a while. You're gonna think. You're gonna draw on the whiteboard. And then you're going to have an epiphany. And so maybe two hours worth of work, so to speak, is actually an hour and 50 minutes of fruitlessly spinning your wheels and 10 minutes of epiphany. So um, the way we measure things, for instance, or even the way we bill out uh, as um, consultants, maybe hourly work doesn't make sense. Um, so I see general trends of you know, more remote enabled work, more asynchronous uh, work, not being as fixed to uh, a specific schedule, um, you know, letting people work essentially where they're most effective and, and frankly, trusting uh, people. One of the facets of scientific management was that it was sort of predicated upon, I mean, I'll go into scientific management here just for a moment because it's simultaneously brilliant and depressing the um, the person who came up with this, Frederick Taylor, could sort of think of it as like the lean startup 100 years ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Before that, um, if you had a, a pool of laborers on, on the factory floor during the Industrial Revolution, you would kind of take the most um, 
productive one, or maybe you would take the meanest one and have him crack the whip over the others. And that's what management was, in essence, somebody prodding the people to work harder. Frederick Taylor came along and said, no, 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 that doesn't seem to work. So he ran a bunch of experiments. You know, what if we adjust the lighting? What if we position these people here? Um, and so he literally, is scientific management, he applied the scientific method to get better results. So that's good. The bad part was that this was all predicated upon the assumption that there was a class of worker, the laborer, that was basically an idiot. And then you needed people that were smarter, i.e. managers, to manage them. And that, even though we don't think of it really in terms uh, these days, that's kind of what the modern structure is based on. You know, the quote, smart people manage and, you know, you've got the laborers performing the labor and the managers are sort of checking their watch to see how effective you are and they're gathering metrics. And so I digressed into all of that to say that uh, I think trust is important. That doesn't make sense. That's how you get widget builders to build more widgets. It's not how you get better quality software. Mm-hmm. So I think trust is going to be a, a big factor going forward and then more flexible um, ways of working that are more conducive to uh, getting a lot done. Um letting people work where they're most comfortable and effective. You said something that was pretty interesting. Your example where somebody spends two hours and an hour and 50 minutes of that is just kind of scratching their head, figuring out what to do. And then in the last 10 minutes is when they actually execute the work. And so there's the, the, the minutes in that two hour stretch aren't all equal. Like all the value happened in the last 10 minutes. And as a developer, you might have in your 365 days of the year, uh, you might have one single day where you implement something that, although it was easy to do, it just happened to be worth $100,000 to your employer. And then your next day of work, you only did maybe uh, you know $100 worth of work that day. And then the next day, maybe you caused them negative $1,000 because <laughs> you made some mistake. And it's all totally different, even though you're getting paid the same amount, uh, you know, per month or whatever the unit of time is. And it really just doesn't make any sense at all. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured your database is fast, reliable, and always on. It's production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer. So go check them out. You can pick from nine databases, including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, ScyllaDB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale. Automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes, and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Set up as fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com slash devchat. Negative $1,000 because you made some <laughs> mistake, and it's all totally different, even though you're getting paid the same amount uh, you know, per month or whatever the unit of time is, and it really just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's... Um... That is absolutely true. Um, I, I think that it's one of the you know difficulties with, first of all, like thinking of labor in terms of hours. If you're paying people to dig ditches, um, it's pretty easy to reason about their 
hourly rate, I guess, because presumably they'll dig at a relatively constant pace. There's not a lot to that. There's not variance in the nature of the work. With knowledge work, that really breaks down. <clears throat> and uh, you know, another thing that uh, that I address at times in the book that I'm writing too is the concept of um, the value of an employee to an organization. The larger and more complex the organization is, the more and more difficult it is to actually like reason about the value that a single person might provide. Um, so if you go to a 5,000 person company that has a development organization of 500 software developers, it's pretty much impossible to say what any of those individual developers is actually worth to the company. So you're kind of measuring and approximating, um, you know, using averages and interpolation, I guess. Right. If you have a software development firm and that firm is um, dealing with a client and say there's four developers and they're billing in some capacity or another, whether it's hourly or based on value or um, a fixed bid or whatever, for better or for worse, it gets a lot easier to understand um, the value that the developers are bringing to that software development firm. So an, an interesting um, takeaway of, of all this is that the people who are kind of punished by this system, that it doesn't make any sense because there's not really a way, as far as I can tell, to figure out something that does make sense for everybody involved. But the people who are penalized is the most productive, best developers. You're providing tons of value to the company, but since your value is kind of getting averaged together with everybody else's, and then obviously there has to be a margin because they have to pay, you know, the total of what they pay everybody has to be less than the amount of money they're making. Um, and so you kind of get the short end of the stick that way. Are you and talking? So, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, and so I was, I was just going to say that, like, although I don't know the answer for, for the whole situation, like I don't know how to fix the whole compensation system for everybody, um, but if you are one of those developers who actually, you know what you're doing and you're providing a lot of value, you can become a consultant and charge based on, based on the project and based on the value of that project rather than charging by the hour. Yeah. And that's a whole different thing. And I think another thing that kind of comes in play into all this is just our current generation's uh, mentality of entitlement, you know, because uh, when I was growing up and stuff, and stuff, if I wanted something, I had to work for it and I had to earn it. You know, I've fallen victim into this uh, entitlement mentality as well. You know, sometimes like, hey, I accomplished, you know, this really big task. You know, can you get me an extra monitor for my computer and stuff? So, you know, I think we've all kind of fallen into that. But I think this current generation is uh, having more and more of this sense of unearned entitlement and by pushing out to outsourcing developers, I think you're also kind of pushing off that issue onto a outsourced company. And that company is now going to have to deal with this uh, entitlement uh, employee. Uh, so how do you think that's going to really affect? And kind of my point is, you see more and more startups fail. And I think this industry is a, especially a very difficult one to actually be a startup and actually excel in a outsource, um, being an outsourced development company. So do you think that's going to have uh, weight on or be in your calculations for moving things back into the enterprise development world? 
So the idea being that um, an incoming generation of programmers um, wants to have it when you say entitlement that, you know, I, I should have, um, you know, better technology, I should have better hours, I, you know, I should get all these things um, because I want them. Yeah, yeah, you know, without actually putting in the time and legwork to uh, either prove yourself to a company, either just because, you know, you graduated from this uh, Ivy League boot camp or whatever the case is, mm -hmm. you know, just uh, a sense of where they are asking for something that they've not yet earned or, you know, they just have crazy and ridiculous demands. Hmm. Well, if I think about that in general, um it's an interesting conundrum because the supply and demand for software development labor more or less seems to encourage that. Um, I may be coming right out of boot camps and at the entry level, uh, that's where I see people occasionally having trouble getting hired. But once you got a year of experience or so, you can kind of write your own ticket. I mean, not everybody's going to get hired at some of the big tech firms, but you'll find a job. So I think, um, that that we're in a, a labor shortage that encourages that sort of mentality. I think that the closer you can get, and and I would see, you know, custom app dev firms uh, wherever they are, whether they're overseas or or, or um, onshore. Say you have a firm, a small one of four or five people that's doing work for a client. They're putting together a project. It's going to be a lot easier to weed out people making demands that um, outstrip what they're actually contributing there than it would be in a massive organization where uh, you have thousands of developers. So it gets harder in terms of the bottom line to tell if someone's demanding a bunch of stuff that uh, they can't justify based on uh, the earnings uh, revenue they're providing. Um, so and I, I think what we're talking about, I think what we're talking about is the proportion between the value that the developer is delivering and their compensation. And I think probably oh. if, if you take the whole team into consideration, then it's probably in proportion because if mm -hmm. it weren't in proportion, then the company would be losing money on their development team. But for each individual developer, it's probably not in proportion because of what we touched on earlier. If you have 5,000 developers, then you really can't evaluate the productivity of each individual developer. Right. Um, but if, if you're one of those more productive developers, like if you're the most productive developer in that company of 5,000 developers, your, your out of proportionness of your compensation is probably the greatest. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, based on what I've seen in the enterprise too, those folks, um, you know, that are kind of at the top, uh, they just tend to go, they go, I, I can't say where they go exactly. I'm, I'm usually advising, uh, people that are presiding over this, but, um, they leave. You've got this kind of brain drain when people perceive that um, that they're contributing a lot more value uh, than they're getting compensated for. It's easy enough for those people to get pay raises by going elsewhere. And, you know, depending on their own interests, it's easy to get a pretty significant pay raise by going off on their own if they're doing that. Um, so that's certainly a source of, uh, I think, brain drain at the top of the enterprise that would be I guess mitigated. This is probably just a question of scale, though, like whether um, whether it's a small or whether it's an uh, outsourced app dev firm, because you might have a significantly large one of those doing significantly large amount of work that has the same dynamic. Um, so 
I think that in essence, that becomes a problem of the scale of the teams. And, uh, you know, maybe there are better ways to slice work down to where um, it's easier to trace the contributions and value of individuals uh, to the effort that they're participating in. Yeah. And I guess what I was trying to get at earlier is that I don't know how like an organization could fix that whole situation. Mm-hmm. But if you yourself as an individual are interested in, in fixing that, that out of proportion compensation for yourself, mm-hmm. then it's possible to do that. Cause you can go out on your own. There's, there's what Joe Polish calls the, the time and effort economy versus the results economy. Um, and like, salespeople are paid based on results. Yep. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, you're paid a commission based on how much money you're bringing in. And the reason that is, is it's very easy to see if, if you sold a million dollars worth of stuff that year, uh, then it's very easy to see how much value you're bringing to the company with, with developers and a lot of other, other roles. It's not quite as easy to connect the, the things you're doing to how much revenue is generated by what you're doing. So you kind of have to guess. Yeah, that definitely is difficult. You know, if I was paid for every bug fix I created, then I would be rich. <laughs> yeah, and who knows like how much value that bug fix created for the, you know, there's, there's, there's bug fixes that could take like several days to track down and it's super hard and nobody can figure, out, figure it out and you finally figure it out, but it's a very low value thing. Or there's some other bug fix that could be super easy to do, but you know, it's it's the bug that's causing the homepage for this company to go down and nobody can sell anything. Yeah. Um, that's a super valuable bug fix. So it's it's it can be really hard to tell. Yeah, this um this reminds me of something that at times I've told software developers, the fellow software developers that I'm talking to. Um is that there can be, and, and it's a little bit depressing to think about, but there can be severely diminishing marginal returns to getting really, really good at some particular language or framework uh, when you're in the kind of like, you know, 95th percentile or whatever it may be. Because I, I, I say, it, it construct this scenario in your head. Imagine that you're working on something and there's another person working alongside you in a kind of similar situation that's slightly better than you. That for that slightly better to pay off, you have to have this whole raft of assumptions that come between what you're doing and eventual value. So you have to be working on a piece of software that eventually ships. And when that software ships, it has to have some value to someone. And that value has to be compensated for by that someone and so on down the line to the point where when you factor in all those contingencies, there's so many steps between the day-to-day labor that you're performing potentially and what it means for your company's bottom line that um, that there may be better things you can do than getting slightly better when you're already really good at something. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So on, on one of the other, on one of the other dev, ta- dev chat TV podcast, the freelancer show, there's a couple of panelists on there, Jonathan Stark and Reuven Lerner, and they do pretty interesting kinds of work. Like Reuven Lerner does training Um, and so with that, it's a one to many kind of thing. And so rather than just writing some code, which like, it's hard to tell sometimes or most of the time how valuable that is, you're raising the productivity of a whole team. And so more like how salespeople are compensated, it's pretty easy to figure out like how much value, value you're delivering there. 
And so for that reason, training can be compensated way better than, than just being an, an employee somewhere. Um, and then Jonathan Stark, he does projects that are like, he doesn't bill by the hour. In fact, he has a book called hourly billing is nuts. He does projects that are, uh, that are a fee based on that project, based on the ROI of that particular project. And that's a way that, uh, that you can be compensated a lot more, a lot more fairly, a lot more fairly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually the, for what it's worth, I, um, I listen to that podcast all the time. I, I love it. <laughs> and, uh, I do like the concept, a lot of value-based billing, um, having read, uh, there's a book called million dollar consulting that, that yeah, I yeah. touch on there. Um, I'm a big fan of that. And with the work that I do in the consulting, um, even uh, IT management consulting type things, it's, you know, sometimes um, it's not possible, but I try to either go fixed or to figure out, you know, if I'm being brought in to help an organization convince a board of directors that the program is on track and should continue to be funded, it's an interesting exercise to say, well, okay, if I help convince the program to continue being funded, you know, what is this program, uh, what is the amount of the funding? And, you know, maybe it's worth, uh, X tiny percent of that to pay me to keep it on track. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And so it, it took me a few tries to finally get the words out of my mouth, but that's what I was trying to get at when I say like, even though you can't fix the whole economy's compensation model, you can fix it for yourself by doing that value-based billing instead of charging by the hour or being an employee. Yep. Yeah. And I want to make a point about, you know, to circle back to your example of the developer who has just a little bit more experience, you know, I think that while it is a diminishing return to just kind of go just one little step up, you know, it may take so much time to just advance to that next level and you won't see as big of a return. But I also think that uh, the more experienced you are or, you know, even of someone of similar experience, you're also able to kind of see a overall picture and help reduce technical debt. So while you don't have a uh, huge difference in the actual finished product, uh, what an end user might see, I think down the road, whether it's a few months or years, uh, seeing that reduction in technical debt will inherently increase the bottom line as well. Yeah, that's a fair point. And, um, you know, it, it also made me think, and not just in terms of maybe deferred value, but I wouldn't advocate in any way that developers not continue to improve. Um, when you're looking at the value of two different developers, relatively similar in skill, but maybe one's just a little bit better, it can get hard to argue or you can argue for diminishing marginal returns in terms of the value for the company, but you certainly can't argue that for the marketability and the value of the individual. If, if you get better, it may not be all that valued by your company, but for you over the course of your career, it absolutely will be, you know, better interviews, better opportunities, better working software, better results. So, um, yeah, in thinking about it, I should circle back. I I don't want anyone to come away thinking I'm not uh, advocating for uh, improvement in the craft. Yeah, not at all. Okay, so Eric, it's probably time to uh, start wrapping up pretty soon, but is there anything we haven't touched on yet that you think we should touch on? Not really that I can think of off the top. I'm trying to go back and, and think if there's anything of particular interest in in the book, for instance, that, um, you know, because I could talk about this stuff all day. I, uh, 
it's very interesting to talk about kind of where we're going and, and what the organization looks like. But um, well, let me ask you this. Is, mm-hmm. is this book developer? I wish I knew how to say this word. I said hegemony. 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 Mm-hmm. He- developer hegemony. Who exactly is it for? Is it just for like any developer who might find this topic interesting or is it for like a specific kind of person? What's your intended audience there? Well, um, in, for my blog, my audience is developers across tech stacks. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in a number of languages, C++, Java, uh, C-sharp. Um, but I've kind of coalesced into talking about things that are broadly applicable. So at the bare minimum, anybody who's a developer may well be interested. Um, but I would say even beyond that, anybody who's a knowledge worker and or anybody who's in the IT industry. Um, there aren't technical examples in it. It's really kind of, um, if you've been following this conversation for anybody listening out there, um, it's similar to this. Uh, so if this is interesting, um, you will find the book interesting as well. Okay, and just to make sure people can find it, we'll put a link in the show notes, of course, but it's leanpub.com slash developer hegemony. Mm-hmm. And that word is H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y. Is that the best place to find it? Uh, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Um, my website, deadtech.com, I recently built a landing page for it. Um, and it is deadtech.com slash book, quite simply. And so that has a link to LeanPub and, and kind of some FAQ-ish information about it. Um, that might be the best place to go. Okay, awesome. So we'll use that link for the for the show notes. and. By the way, deadtech.com, that's D-A-E-D-T-E-C-H.com slash mm-hmm. book is the URL. It's it's not D-E-A-D, it's D-A-E-D. <laughs> yep. Oh, and I should probably also say, because we've tossed around the word a couple of times, the word hegemony loosely means dominance. Um, it's usually used in a political sense that a very powerful nation might establish a hegemony. Um so maybe that'll raise some eyebrows out there. But the idea is that um, the landscape of the future that I see is essentially that developers come to um, you know, dominate the business landscape. Okay. And now how do you reconcile that, Eric, with the fact that like, you know, doctors are pretty much universally seen as experts. Obviously, there's people who don't like or trust doctors, but you know, you don't go to the doctor with like a list of requirements and say, Hey doctor, I need you to do all this <laughs> stuff for me. But developers, it's 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 weird because developers are so we're paid uh, like on the same scale as doctors and lawyers. Um, but we're like the peons at the bottom of at the bottom rung, uh, we're the implementers. Somebody else, you know, more important people are deciding what to do, and then they just tell us what to do, and mm-hmm. we implement things. So, like, how do you reconcile that with the idea of of developers kind of coming into dominance? Sure, I'm uh, happy to speak to that too, because that's actually kind of at the core of the book is is lamenting that we are the peons, and given how much um, how much our our labor is needed and and the leverage that we have, I don't think it needs to be that way. The way I see that getting reconciled in the future, you know, I go into a lot of detail about it, but the the most simple way I think that I could summarize it briefly is to say that 
lawyers and doctors, if we're using those two as comparisons, those are old and established fields. We're young. We were bored out of the corporate condition as part of essentially automating operations to make things more efficient. So for a long time, IT was considered to be a corporate cost center. Uh, now we're getting to the point where software development is certainly a, a revenue-driving activity, and you, you could say it's sort of running the motor of the world. I think that as we go, we're going to find that the leverage we have lets us kind of throw off the shackles of being considered grunts. And I would say it this way, um, doctors trade in human health and lawyers trade in uh, adjudicating and uh, if they're in um, – government writing the laws, I guess, um, that what we as software developers really trade in is efficiency and time savings. And so I think that as we, and, you know, in talking about people who are uh, talk, uh, discussing uh, getting away from hourly billing and how to figure out value-based billing, I think that's kind of the vanguard of where we're going. Those are people who say, yeah, you know, I write code, but hold on a minute here. You want to hire me to write code. Let's figure out if that's even necessary first. Don't come to me with specs. Don't come to me with requirements. Come to me with a problem, and specifically a problem about how do I make X more efficient. So I think if we look into the future, you're not going to see those specs and those kind of things come up as much, that you're going to see large organizations come to these firms and say, I have we figured out that this particular operation we're having is not efficient. Help. Um so that's kind of where I see that reconciliation happening. Well, I sure hope your prediction is correct. I'm not quite <laughs> as optimistic, but if you're right, then that would be a wonderful thing. Um, I'm going to transition us into picks. I'll do my picks first here. Um, two picks. My first pick is that book we kind of touched on earlier, Value-Based Fees by Alan Weiss. And he's the same guy who wrote <laughs> Million Dollar Consulting. Both of those are, are great books, really eye-opening if you're a uh, self-employed developer. And the other book I'm going to mention is a uh, technical book called Effective JavaScript. And that is by, I have it right here next to me, David Herman. And that's one of the better, not that I've read a lot of JavaScript books, but that's one of the better ones that I've come across, especially if you're coming from it uh, with not a lot of previous familiarity. I tried to go through that book, uh, the definitive guide to JavaScript or whatever, you know, that like 1100 page book. Um, and this one is a lot better if you want to like gain an actual understanding. Okay. Uh, Dave, why don't we go to you next for your picks? Yeah, I really just have one pick and it's Ansible. So if you don't know what that is, it's a uh, automation IT for deploying environments, applications, managing systems, and just creating consistency across your environments. So it's something that I've been playing around with recently and now I'm just loving it. A lot of it's in a YAML format and you know it's very easy to read and there's so many different kind of playbooks out there to just kind of do everything that you need to do with just a few lines of code. Awesome. So Eric, I don't know if you have any picks, but um, feel free to share your picks or at least your your book again, if you want. Uh, sure. I, I have a couple that I had brought to the table here. Um, yeah, I'm uh, certainly happy to offer up my own book as a pick. Um, we are targeting a uh, first quarter of 2017 release date, so uh, it should be out soon. But even if um, 
if you don't want to wait for that, uh, you can buy it from Lean Pub, where it'll be a little cheaper before the actual uh, publication date. So there's that. There's another um, uh, pick that I'd like to offer, which is um, there's a site called Ribbon Farm, and um, the author of that site did a series of posts called the Gervais Principle, and it was office politics as explained using the television show The Office. And so if you're into some of the kind of office political uh, things that we've touched on here, that is a really fascinating read. It's um, it's kind of intense, but it's pretty enjoyable. And then the next, uh, or the last pick that I'll offer is that we touched on um, the freelancer show and, and um, Jonathan Stark has a podcast called Ditching Hourly that I think is pretty recent and I've been devouring that. That's uh, fascinating stuff. So definitely worth checking out even if you're not in the uh, freelance world. It's a different way to think about um, projects, software projects and value. So I recommend uh, to anyone to check it out. Awesome. Well, Eric, thanks a lot for being on the show. We really enjoyed having you here. I appreciate you having me. It's been fun. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at hired.com slash Ruby Rogues podcast. <laughs> 